good afternoon. You're listening to Let the Bible Speak. Let the Bible Speak is the radio ministry of the Free Presbyterian Church. Stephen Pollock is the pastor of the Free Presbyterian Church of Malvern, Pennsylvania. Thank you for joining us today as he opens the Word of God and lets the Bible speak. Let's turn tonight in the Word of God to Nehemiah chapter 13. Reading in the Word of God in Nehemiah 13, verse 1 through 3, and then down to the verse number 23. On that day they read in the book of Moses, in the audience of the people, and therein was found written that the Ammonite and the Moabite should not come into the congregation of God forever. Because they met not the children of Israel with bread and with water, but hired Balaam against them, that he should curse them, Howbeit our God turned the curse into a blessing. Now it came to pass, when they had heard the law, that they separated from Israel all the mixed multitude. And then verse number 23. In those days also saw I Jews that had married wives of Ashdod, of Ammon, and Moab. And their children spake half in the speech of Ashdod, and could not speak in the Jews' language, but according to the language of each people. And I contended with them and cursed them and smote certain of them and plucked off their hair and made them swear by God, saying, You shall not give your daughters unto their sons, nor take their daughters unto your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin by these things? Yet among many nations was there no king like him, who was beloved of his God, and God made him king over all Israel." Nevertheless, even him did outlandish woman cause to sin. Shall we then hearken unto you to do all this great evil, to transgress against our God in marrying strange wives? And one of the sons of Joida, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was son-in-law to Sanballat the Horonite, and therefore I chased him from me. Remember them, O my God, because they have defiled the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and of the Levites. Thus cleansed I them from all strangers, and appointed the wards of the priests and the Levites, every one in his business. And for the wood offering, at times appointed, and for the first fruits, remember me, O my God, for good. Undoubtedly, the practice of religion is a, a personal matter. We walk with God as individuals. It is often seen in the Word of God that there are those who can practice religion externally and yet without their hearts being involved. And thus we understand that true religion, unlike the Pharisees, is a religion that occupies our hearts. It's a practice externally that flows from the internal reality of our souls. And as religion is a matter of our hearts, it is then practiced on a, on a very personal level. We individually obey the word of God. We individually pray and we individually read the word of the scriptures. We individually pray and seek the face of God. We come, even as individuals, to worship in God's house. But whilst that is undoubtedly so, yet it is possible to discern the temperature of religion in a community. The community may be a church, it may be a nation, a region, whatever it might be, but you can, you can discern and you can 
discover the temperature of religion in a wider area. We know that the days in which we live at this time are days marked by religious depression, religious declension and apostasy. When many souls are saved, then it can be said that righteousness exalts a nation. As the religion of many has an influence upon the society, then righteousness is prevalent. And so that society, that community, well, that religious temperature can be discerned, marked by righteousness, not declension. We have noticed in this portion of God's word that there are certain marks of revival that are seen. There is in revival a love for God's house. There's a love for the word of God and for prayer and for the sacraments. Well, we saw that in the mid-chapters of this portion of God's word. When God comes, when God comes and revives, there is a delight in being amongst the people of God in the house of God, worshipping the name of God. There is also in revival, there's a guarding of God's day. There's a treasuring of that one day in seven set aside for that public worship. God's day is no longer held in disregard. Rather, it is treasured and revered. It is, in the language of Scripture, it is hallowed. There is also, though, in times of revival blessing, there is a valuing of the family as God's ordination and institution. That marriage is looked upon as a, as a blessing and the family is protected and guarded in days of revival. In days of declension, the reverse is seen. When the tide is out spiritually, the house of God is not valued. The day of God is desecrated, not regarded. And the family falls into disrepute. And that's what we are seeing here in Nehemiah chapter 13. Following days of blessing, Nehemiah has departed. And in his absence, there is a spirit of apostasy that creeps in upon the community. And if we were looking at this community and seeking to measure its spiritual temperature, we will measure that temperature in terms of how they view the house of God, how they view the day of God, and how they view the institution of God, namely the matter of marriage. And when we see these three things, we see, we see a spiritual uh, declension that has set in, an apostasy that marks the people of God. Last time we were together, we looked at the first two of these marks. We saw the compromise in the house of God. We saw that the world had crept into the church and Eliashib had that unholy alliance with Tobiah. We saw also that they were not giving faithfully to the house of God. They had forsaken the tithes and the offerings. And there was also compromise in the practice of the Sabbath day. They were trading on the Sabbath day. The day that was to be a day of rest for worship had become a day of of trades and commerce. And so tonight we continue by noticing that there was compromise in the area of the family. And you turn back to chapter 10 and the verse number 30 and you will see that part of the revival blessing was the making of that covenant that we saw. And part of that covenant in verse number 30 was this, that we would not give our daughters unto the people of the land nor take their daughters for our sons. And despite those vows, when you get to chapter 13 and the verse number 23, and Nehemiah reports in these words, In those days also saw I Jews that had married wives of Ashdod, 
of Ammon and of Moab had married those who were committed to false gods, those of the surrounding nations. And when there is spiritual apostasy, that will always come into the realm of the home. There is a very close connection between the spiritual health of families and the spiritual health of the church. When there's backsliding in the home, that has an impact upon the church. And when there's a backsliding in the church, that in turn also affects the home. It shouldn't surprise us. These are God's institutions and they are closely related. But you see, in this compromise, you see a tremendously negative result. Verse number 24, you see the children spake half in the speech of Ashdod and could not speak in the Jews' language. What happened was they had come more familiar with the language of false religion and had been unfamiliar with the language of true religion. And this is not simply a matter of communication amongst the society. If they could not speak the Jews' language, then they were ill-equipped to study the word of God or to hear the word of God. They were ill-equipped to worship God with this absence of knowledge of the Jews' language. And so we see here immediately that this area of compromise in the home has had a tremendous influence even in the spirituality of a future generation. And I suggest to you there are a couple of reasons whereby this compromise had occurred. First of all, there may well have been, and I think this is true, there was a failure to appreciate the importance of marriage. A carelessness had crept in. They had made a covenantal commitment, but they had allowed, they had allowed those promises to fall by the wayside. Marriages that are mixed and unequal do not produce a godly seed. God has ordained marriage. It is a blessing. It is God that gave Eve to Adam. God believes in marriage and God understands the importance of marriage for the well-being of the church. There's a casual spirit that can creep in even to the professing church where they do not rightly treasure and hold as sacred the union of a man and a woman, particularly that union that's in the things of Christ. Our society has seen a downward spiral in its valuing of marriage. In the free love movement of the 1960s, and from those years that followed, there became an, a, a toleration of common law marriage. At the same time, there was a desire to encourage no-fault divorce. Such an undervaluing of the importance of marriage then in turn led I believe, to a movement towards what we now understand in the misnomer of same-sex marriage. Paul saw the importance of marriage for the well-being of the church. You remember the words of Ephesians chapter 5. You'll know Ephesians 5 very well in terms of instructions to husbands and wives. But never forget that those instructions were written for the well-being of the church. He was not writing a manual on marriage in the home. He was writing to a local church and reminding the local church that they must not be drunk with wine when it's excess, but be filled with the Spirit. 
And what he's saying is that those who are walking spiritually, they are those who practice that spirituality in the realm of the home just as much as in the realm of the church. Similarly, Peter. Peter, in his instructions in 1 Peter chapter 3, as he gives instructions to the, the wives and to the husbands, he reminds the husbands that if they do not live with their wives according to knowledge, giving them honor as being heirs together of the grace of life, he reminds them that if they do not do so, then their prayers will be hindered. There's an impact. When the homes are not spiritually vibrant, it is the case that men will come to the prayer meeting of the church and they will not be enabled to do business with God. You cannot disregard the well-being of your wife and your home and then come into the house of God and expect to know God's blessing in prayer. This is the importance here. Peter and Paul, they understand the foundational importance of godly marriage. And out of godly marriage and godly homes, then flows the spirituality and the vibrance of the church. And so we're seeing this in, in Old Testament picture form here, where we're seeing people who give their, their sons and their daughters to ungodly spouses. Marriage is not valued properly, and it's a mark and a cause of spiritual declension. We need to pray. The state of marriage in our society is of monumental significance. Cannot urge you more seriously to make this a matter of prayer. That God will be pleased to preserve and bless the institution of marriage, an institution that precedes the fall. And see, when, when people neglect God, they will neglect God's gifts. They will turn from God and they will turn from his ways. So there was a failure to appreciate the importance of marriage. There was also a failure of biblical headship. In verse number 25, men were giving daughters and allowing sons to take daughters. What you see here is the spiritual authority of the father as the head of the home. The Bible says the husband is the head of the wife. It doesn't say should be, simply says is. And as husbands, we are either good heads or bad heads. And too many, perhaps, are prepared to neglect the matter of their headship. And they're prepared to neglect their headship in terms of the marriage of their children. We are not advocating arranged marriages here. There are multiple different methods whereby husbands receive wives and wives receive husbands in the word of God. And you consider all the scriptures, whether you think of, of Isaac or Ruth, you will see different examples of how this is conducted in various cultures. But one thing is clear. Our society has neglected the importance of parents having an involvement in the courtship and future marriage of their children. And this portion of God's word reminds us of the repercussions of such folly. And we all, as parents, we all, we all make mistakes. We all err in various ways. But it is vital that we understand our role and the significance of our role for the well-being of our children going forward. 
that we have the right to influence them, to say this is not a wise course of action. This is not a time to conduct a, a seminar on courtship, marriage, and dating. It is simply just to remind us all that in the Word of God there is authority structures in the home. There is the responsibility of fathers particularly, alongside their wives, to direct and guide their children, even in this most sensitive area of who they would marry. And so may we not, may we not succumb to the spirit of the world, a world that is marked by spiritual declension, but rather may we, by the blessing of God, know what it is to do the will of God in these areas. And so we've noted in this chapter the root of declension, which is in the mixed multitude of verse number three. We've noted the results of declension in regards to the house of God, the day of God, and then also this institution of God, namely uh, the matter of marriage. But as we close, let's note the recovery from this declension. This chapter is, in many ways, a very sad end to the book, that the people blessed with refreshing, the people blessed with the presence of God, could then fall back into sin is indeed a tragedy. Yet the book does end with a note of hope. It ends with the joy of Nehemiah's perseverance. He kept going to the end. He kept on praying and he kept on serving the Lord. You see the spirit of prayer and the the prayers that are repeated in this chapter, the refrain in the verses, Remember me, O my God. Nehemiah had not given up his trust in God. That that prayer is repeated on three occasions. And here's a man that is determined not to bemoan declension, but to set about the process of recovery. There is initially in this recovery, there is the matter of recognition. In verses 1 to 3, I've said before, are the summary verses that introduce the rest of the chapter. Nehemiah has gone for a time. We've we've read that in in the the verse number 6 and 7. And then has gone for a time, he returns to Jerusalem. But as he returns, I believe there is the reading of the book of Moses in the audience of the people. There's a recognition of sin by the application of the word of God. There's one particular portion that they read together. That's Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 3 and 4. It has to do with the matter of the Ammonite and the Moabite not coming into the congregation of God because of their refusal to to bless the children of Israel with bread and with water. And they sought to hire Balaam. The account is given to us here in verse 1 and 2. They sought to bring a curse. But Balaam could not curse those that God had blessed. And let's turn to a blessing. But for us, I want to simply note that the word of God is read. Principles are drawn out from the word of God. And then those principles are applied in the given situation. That order is important. First, you study the word. Having studied the word, you understand what the word means. And having understood what the word means, you then draw out principles that arise out of the word. And then and only then do you apply the word to your present context. You must also endeavor by God's grace to do the same in your own situation. So when you come to read the word of God in your own homes, what does the word mean? What's it mean in its context? 
What principles can I arise, derive out of that portion? And then, and only then, how does the word of God apply to my soul? Each step is vital. Don't apply the word without understanding what the word means. And don't simply understand what it means and then forget to apply it. I encourage you, please, when you read the word of God, when we come together in the house of God, what's the truth? And how does it impact my life today? And so there is initially recognition. They see their sin as they read the word of God and apply the word of God. And then there's also reformation. You'll see in verse 9, this is with regards to uh, Tobiah being in the, the house of God, and he shouldn't be. Then I commanded and they cleansed the chambers. Verse number 11, he brings back the Levites into their place. They had all gone to the fields. They were getting no uh, support in the house of God, so they all left the house of God. He brings them back into the house of God. Verse number 21, you have his actions with regards to the Sabbath day. Initially, before that, they begin to close the gates. Close the gates before dark on the Sabbath day so that there would not be trade. Then what happens after that? There were those who lodged about the wall. Verse 21 is a, a tremendously vivid passage. So there were those who were shut outside the walls on the Sabbath day to prevent them trading. Nehemiah finds him and he says, if you do it again, I'm going to lay my hands on you. That's not the conduct of a man of God. Oh, absolutely it is. This man was committed to the word of God, regardless of his own personal reputation. He was going to make sure that he dealt with sin. And he's going to drive sin away from the people of God, that they would not violate God's day. He was a man of action, a man of involved in spiritual reformation. Note two things regarding his reformation. First of all, it was thorough. Sometimes in our homes, sometimes in the church. There can be a recognition of sin and bad practice. And the tendency is to, to just fix a little bit here or there. Nehemiah sought to bring root and branch reform. He was thorough. He was diligent. He found the cause and he addressed the symptoms. This came ultimately from a love for God. He walked in the fear of God, not in the fear of men. When you fear God... Out of love for God, there is then an anger produced towards those who are opposed to God. Note the, the language he uses. Verse number eight, it grieved me sore. And then he sets about the word cleansing. The word cleansing or purified used in verse number nine, verse number 22, and verse number 30. This issue of cleansing, a purging of sin. If you understand the Old Testament, you understand that cleansing also involved the application of blood. He was a man who feared God and loved God and therefore sought to apply the gospel so that the sins would be removed in the context of those sins being forgiven. Cleansing. Cleansing the house of God. His fear of God was opposed to any fear of man. He was fearless. Again, I remind you, verse number 21, I will lay my hands on you. This, this is a man who had no fear of merchants and sellers in verse number 20. Fear of man brings a snare. The servant of God must not be contentious, but must not be cowardly. We have recently 
uh, elected, ordained and installed three new elders. They need wisdom to discern what is sin and what is not sin. They need love to handle the people of God with tenderness and affection and care. But they also need courage when there's sin in the camp to put that sin out. To deal with that sin seriously. So the word of God will not indeed be hindered. And so Nehemiah's Reformation was thorough. It was also biblical. And we've noted that, verse number 1 to 3, they bring the word of God to bear upon the situation. They also use a biblical example to to deal with the issue of of the mortal abominations. They refer to Solomon, king of Israel, verse number 26. They're using the word of God to enforce and remind the people of God. It's a reminder to us again that it is the word of God that must be our only rule of faith and practice. One of the key biblical principles arising from the Reformation was that of Semper Reformati, always reforming. To call ourselves a reformed church can at times be somewhat misleading. It may give the impression that we are we're sorted. We're reformed in the past tense. Of course, the word means that we trace our heritage to the Reformation. But as a reformed church, we must be clear that we are always reforming. And if we come to the Word of God and we come to understand the Word of God and see that we are acting in a manner that is unbiblical, then we've got to deal with that. We've got to subject ourselves to the scrutiny of the Word of God, that the Word of God truly is our only matter of faith and practice. And so if old practices have been held in the church for centuries, if they are not biblical, then we must repent and go forward, turning away from those practices. If we see things in the Word of God that we're not doing, then we must repent and start doing them. And so all I'm saying tonight is that we've got to have a spirit that's submissive to the Word of God. Be careful. Careful that we make sure that all that we do in the house of God is according to the Word of God. And so Nehemiah closed the book with a prayer that would, again, be a prayer that we should all take upon our lips tonight. In light of a determination to do the will of God, may God remember me, oh my God, for good. That ought to be our prayer. If we can come before God tonight in prayer and say, yes, it is our determination to do thy will. It is our determination not not to follow the path of the world or the path of false religion. It is our determination to do the will of God. May God help us to do so. And may he remember us for good. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode of Let the Bible Speak from Malvern Free Presbyterian Church. We extend an invitation to all to join us as we worship the Lord each week. You will be made very welcome. The church is situated at 80 Mallon Road, Malvern, Pennsylvania. We meet for worship on the Lord's Day at 11 a.m. and 6 p.m. A Bible study and prayer meeting is also held on Tuesday evening at 7 p.m. If you'd like more information about the gospel or the church, please call 610-993-3170 or email malvernfpc at yahoo.com. We preach Christ crucified.